Hey listeners, this is Albert here. I just want to give you a little heads up. This episode's going to be a little bit long at about two hours. Um, Sorry, a lot of interesting content, a lot of fun to record. Also, uh, we recorded this a little bit different than normally, and you will find that there's some audio issues here and there throughout. It's nothing terrible, but occasionally part of a word will get dropped and that sort of thing. It's not your device, it's the recording itself. Alright, on with the show. Welcome to the One Player Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and this is episode 132. Arkham Horror. All right, so we're here live tonight with uh, Jeremy Santiago, a fellow listener and member of the One Player Guild. Hey, Jeremy, so nice to have you on board with us tonight. I appreciate it, guys. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, we're very happy to have you uh, answering our call, looking for guest hosts. And we're doing this actually live. I figured we'd give a shot to see uh, who's able to come out, come listen to us record, participate either on text or on voice chat. And we were glad to hear that Jeremy wanted to come join. So we're very happy to have him. Mm-hmm. Yep, this is, this is going to be fun. All right. So some of the first things we normally cover, we're going to be talking about some of the more recent news articles and things that have come to our attention. Uh, Albert, you were talking about your, uh, your beach vacation? Yeah, I was at the beach last week, and I was just talking about that. It was really great. Four days, four, five days, four nights at the at a South Carolina beach called Fripp Island. It's just really nice hanging out with deers, alligators. I didn't see any, and pelicans. And I took plenty of games to play, but you know what? We never got around to that. We were having too much fun. No escape room type stuff. Actually, no. I did take Exit in the lab. Ooh. We started playing it, and. It, it, it was good, and we're a little confused, and it was kind of late, and half of us fell asleep, and so we just stopped. Yeah, the Exit games are one of the only, or one of the uh, more recent escape room type games that I haven't played yet. I've played through all of the released unlock games, and I've played through the Escape the Room, the Escape Room, the game, um, game. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult to say that one all in one sentence, but I've played through that set of things, but I've yet to play the Exit games. Well, from what I played so far, I liked it. I, I kind of found the story a little bit hokey, I guess. I, honestly, I wasn't buying it. Well, I think that's part of the goal of many escape rooms is to have that hokey story. Uh, you know, I, I've done two or three real escape rooms, I think, too. And and they have felt better than this one. This felt a little more, a lot more lame. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read that one, but I mean, if... You read if you look at many escape rooms, they're they're pretty pasted on themes. But point the point of it is not to be enjoying a classy novel. You know, no, I know. Lasts for like an hour. There's not that much depth that goes into it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, the point of it is to puzzles, and definitely this had puzzles. Mm-hmm. And and you know, like any good escape room, you start, you have no idea what to do, and you just get really confused. But eventually, we started figuring out a couple of the puzzles. And as we revealed puzzles, as we did puzzles, they revealed other puzzles, and we're building momentum, and, and then we called it a night. And we'll go back to it. Have you uh, have you guys tried those solo, or are you guys talking more uh, more in groups and with your family and things like that? I, I haven't tried it. I was playing it with my family, so it was four of us. And um, 
it, it would have worked just as well solo. I, I mean, the benefit of the of the group is that you have more brains looking at the same puzzles, right? So you're going to figure out stuff. There's cases where my wife was doing one, and immediately she knew what to do with it. She started. She she had she she had the right idea, but then when she started putting the pieces together, she couldn't see the solution. And I looked at it and I saw the solution, but we've never figured out how to start. So so the teamwork was awesome. Now, but I've, other than that, you could do it by yourself. I played seven of those games to date. The biggest problem is that my wife really wants to play them too, and she doesn't solo nearly as much as I do. So if I play one by myself, it means that my wife will never get to play it practically, and that means that I will have an unhappy wife. That mm-hmm. said, I have played one of the Escape Room games uh, solo, Escape Room the game games solo, but I have not played any of the Unlock games solo. That said, you know the, they feel like puzzle games, and I enjoy many other different puzzle games. Just these ones are much more interactive, much more sort of on the edge of your seat with the timer going and all the different mechanics and things going through it. So I do feel like I would be able to at least gauge how well it is to play them solo, and especially based on the experience of having played one of them solo, one out of the seven. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm torn because, you know, I think my family would really love them, but uh, I'm kind of torn of whether or not I should give them and, and you know, give them a crack as a family or just kind of hoard them and, and play my dungeon <laughs> solo. So I'm still waiting to hear the verdict still out, I think, is whether or not I should uh, do it one way or the other. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's so many. Why don't you why don't you do one with a family and see how that goes? If it's a dud with them, then now you know, <laughs> and you're guilt-free. That is a great idea. Yeah, for me, I just wouldn't be able to get too many in solo because I would just end up with an angry wife. <laughs> that's unfortunately <laughs> how that comes out. That's a good call, and that's why you're probably still married. Good call. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I think speaking of ones that have interesting themes, Albert, have you done the Unlock, Pip, and Squeak one? No, I haven't seen that at all. Have you ever heard of the Sam and Max games? The video game from way back the when? The video game from way back when, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Pip and Squeak feels very much like a Sam and Max game combined with the art style that they're using. It's very cartoony and very silly. You'll do things like combine... Well, I don't want to ruin any of the aspects of it, so I'll riff off of a Sam and Max type thing. But you will combine beer and a statue in order to make a drunk statue, for example. So it's a very cartoony type world where you're putting things together and it's just silly and all the art style really brings it together. And none of the other ones did that. All the other ones are really much, very much putting you into the idea of a real life escape room. And with the unlock games, I don't feel like they're putting you in the mind of an escape room. They're putting you into a point and click adventure, monkey Island, salmon max, um, uh, the skull one that we discussed quite a while ago. Yeah. Someone had actually made a mention, by the way, Grim Fandango, excuse me, Grim Fandango. Oh yeah. 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 And someone had actually made a mention on the forums a while ago. And I couldn't respond to it at that point in time asking how many of these have played. I have played a lot of them, <laughs> a lot, a lot of them. Uh, before I got into board games, this was the primary thing I did with my family was go through these point and click adventure games And these were loved things among my family. And I'm talking back when I was younger, even. Um, So like around the time of the original release of Grim Fandango. And I will say that Grim Fandango is probably one of my favorite ones of these point and click adventures. Definitely better than any of the other Monkey Islands. 
I like the story that it developed. I like the interplay of ideas in it. Um, and so I'm just going to put that out there from this comment a while ago. Yes, Grim Fandango is my favorite of those point-and-click adventures. Mm-hmm. I only played a couple, but that was one of them, and def- I definitely like that. Very much an aside from the Pip and Squeak Adventure Room game. But anyway, so the Pip Squeak Adventure Room just reminded me of the Sam and Max series. So I think that okay. I like that theme that they used for it, and I would definitely recommend you try and pick up that unlock game. Great for kids. Okay. Anyway, speaking of messages that I received also, I received a message from someone who it appears had also been going around to some other places on Reddit and posting these ideas. Um, They were talking, they had a very, I guess, cynical idea, or at the very least, it came across cynical how they were styling it. But allow me to try and present their idea in my own words. Um, They were trying to say that there's, there's certainly a rise in solitaire board gaming that we see coming from publishers that we're seeing at least twice as many solitaire games coming out at Gen Con as we saw last year. And we saw twice as many coming out at origins. So we see more solitaire friendly games coming out. I'd certainly like to think that, you know, we humble people at the one player podcast are helping that trend continue. But I think there's a lot of people who are pushing that, that to continue. But this person was trying to suggest that one of the reasons or possibly the reason why publishers are wanting to have solitaire modes in games is because they're trying to push the idea that each individual consumer should purchase a copy for themselves in order to use it solitaire rather than trying to push the idea that a game group should purchase it as a collective. That before, when you make a game from two to four and are saying it has to be something done socially, you'll sell one copy for four people. But if you're trying to push the idea that the game is designed to be enjoyed solitaire, well, then everyone needs to have their own copies. They're now going to be pushing four copies and it's pure profit for them. So therefore, they're trying to simply influence the market and influence consumers to buy more copies and to each buy an individual copy. And so that's why we're seeing more solitaire gaming occurring. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's why we're seeing it, but you know, that, yeah, that's definitely a benefit for them of solitaire games. So that, that's one reason why they would like them. I, I think that, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It seems like a very cynical idea to think that they're trying to influence game groups to buy more copies by putting in solitaire modes. I just don't see it. I just don't think that's true, especially since I know that many game groups share copies. Many things that I've reviewed, I've reviewed from borrowing a copy for a couple of months. You know, I'm very happy to have a dynamic group, but I just don't think that's going to really be something that influences them. My personal opinion on why we're seeing the rise in solitaire gaming is simply because there's a market demand for it. When you publish a game, you want to be able to reach as much market share as possible, and essentially to be able to tick off as many boxes. You want to have something unique. You want to be able to have something that is colorblind friendly. You want to make sure that the art is good. So you have a couple boxes you want to check mark in order to be able to have your demand for the game go up. And as more people are demanding solitaire games, they're simply including it because there's more demand for it. So I think they're going to be selling more copies. I don't think any publisher is ever thinking, hey, if we say it's solitaire friendly, f- more people are going to buy it than less because they won't share it with others. I, <laughs> I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that there's really more to add to that. I think you hit it right on the nose. Um, 
I think you guys probably want to give yourselves a bit more credit because um, I, I think that there's, you know, quite a, a big reason that solo games are huge now is because of this skill that you guys started. And um, I think there's two pieces to it. As you just said, Julius, they're just trying to make they're trying to sell more games, right? It's a business. They're trying to sell more games. If they can get a few more copies sold or a couple hundred more copies sold by putting a one on the box, then they'll do it. Um, it's the same way when they'll add like, you know, a fourth or fifth player to a game when it really doesn't play that well with the fourth or fifth player, but they'll throw it on there, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be cynical, it's all about that return on investment. And I think that it is about that. I just don't think that they're trying to influence consumers. That's not what I think they're doing. Right. Um, and just because I wanted to to sort of get a publisher's take on this idea, I reached out to Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games to see what his thoughts on this would be. And he was kind enough to to, you know, let me get a quote for him in a brief little discussion with him about it. And with Jamie, when he went into publishing, what he really wanted to do was just to make people happy. That's what he's trying to do. He says that when he makes a game, the idea of making the game is to make people happy. And when, and he hired Morton Pedersen and an Automa team to make solo variants for their games. And my personal thoughts and what, when Jamie gets Morton, he's very much putting out a stance of saying he wants to have someone making solitaire games. And Jamie says that the reason why he does this is to, because it makes solo gamers happy as an aside. If doing that doesn't meet a return on investment, then they're not going to be able to continue to do it. But the first thing they do is what is going to look for maximum happiness. And then they aim for that as a goal. And if making a well designed solitaire in the game creates maximum happiness, then they continue to do so. And I thought that that way of phrasing it was an excellent way of phrasing just sort of what goes into the mind of publishers. They're not trying to influence people. They're trying to provide happiness. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Just, and, and, and like you said, ultimately it, it is all about making a profit and mm-hmm. by making people happy, they make more money. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't think it's add solo so we can sell more copies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if that if that is where you're going with it, then I think you're going to be short-sighted and going to be putting someone when it's not appropriate, and then you're going to end up building a bad reputation for selling crappy games, basically, right? Junky games. And I can definitely <laughs> think of a couple of people who have done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The those words by Jamie. I mean, those are. I, I believe it when it comes from him. As far as uh, just how conversations I've had with him uh, through like BGG or Facebook. I mean, this guy loves games. Um, he mm-hmm. loves, he just, you could see it in, in, in all of his releases. He really does put a lot of love into it and uh, wants to hear that feedback. And I don't know that I've seen a publisher as active as Jamie is on, on the forums. I mean, he's all over the place. He's always responding. He's awesome. I can mm-hmm. I think of one that's really active. Isaac Childress of Cephalo Fair Games. Touche. He's really active. <laughs> there's, there's a few, maybe. Right? The there's, there's quite a few. Yeah. But uh, yeah, even those two names, I mean, love is synonymous with the two of them, wouldn't you think? Yeah. But I think that's just a great way to sort of summarize what this whole hobby is about, promoting happiness. Yeah, yeah that's true. Amen. But speaking of Isaac Childress of Cephalo Fair Games, have you heard of the new founders of Gloomhaven Kickstarter? <laughs> nice segue, but no, I haven't. 
Um, Founders of Gloomhaven, you're probably familiar with Gloomhaven. And in fact, we're going to be discussing it more later on the podcast. But Gloomhaven was a game that went to Kickstarter once and then a second time because it was in such high demand. It is a massive legacy-style dungeon quest game. Founders of Gloomhaven is a very different board game. It is a one-to-four competitive Euro game about controlling resources and building out a city and connecting it with every other player on the board. And the game boasts a solitaire mode. I've had a chance at this one time, there is a black and white print and play. And so maybe we'll have to bring in print and play patrol and get their comments on it with more information. But I have not had a chance to print off the whole print and play because it is a big print and play. I have had a chance to review over the solitaire mode myself. For me, looking at the game, similar to Gloomhaven, the game looks really nice. The components look good. The gameplay looks nice. I like how it plays. But it seems like this one really focuses on the interaction between multiple players because every player controls one specific resource or multiple specific resources, and you move them around. When you're playing the solo game all that sort of goes by the wayside and you get to control it all and you're, you're not doing that sharing of resource and the tug and pull of racing to other things. And that tension seems to be weakened. Um, Instead you just sort of have, I mean, this is my, this is just my, my interpretation based only on reading the rules, and I haven't seen it. And I wish I could give, you know, I wish I could be able to say more, like I've tried it and I've played through it. I know that it's available, and you may hear me do more about this after I've played it on Tabletop, on, on tabletop Simulator, because I feel like I should give it a fair shake. But I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about the solitaire rules because it looks like this is one of those games where the solitaire rules feel very different than playing the regular game. It doesn't look like you're, you're playing the regular game when you're playing the solitaire game. It feels like a very different thing. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that as long as that solitaire game still feels good. I suppose. I don't know. It's more of an issue for me. What's your thoughts on that, Jeremy? Um, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think there's a couple games that come to mind when I think of like how you play it, uh, you know, with other people and then playing it solo. If, if you miss something, especially player interaction, the, the first one that comes to mind is dead of winter. Um, there is a cooperative mm-hmm. mode in the box, but you're really getting a different game. Uh, so much of dead of winter is, uh, you know, the, the trader aspect of it and, you know, just, bickering back and forth and whatnot and uh yeah that that would definitely concern me um have you seen any like playthroughs or anything like that of the solo uh i have not i know that they're looking to release some of the solo variant playthroughs but i believe they haven't got that yet i don't remember who it is that they've sent off a review copy to but that's what it is i know it's available on tabletop simulator i've tried playing large games on tabletop simulator things like that and I've been put off before about it, and I, I have a feeling that if I try it again, that's definitely going to skew my opinion of the game. But I'll probably give it a shot anyway, just so I can say with a bit more confidence about how it feels. But just in reading the rules, it feels like a different game. You know, games like the Scythe Solitaire Mode or New Bedford, those ones manage to have solitaire modes that still play with the interaction with other players like you're playing the real game. 
And I reached out to Isaac Childress about this, and he seems to confirm. Uh, Let me quote him. My approach to creating a solo game is not to focus on simulating player interaction. If people want player interaction, they can play with other players. Rather, I try to use the game system to create a fun and interesting puzzle that can be randomized for repeated play. It's also very important that there be actual tension and objectives within the solo play, so it is not simply see how much points you can get. Um, I think that he achieved his goal. And if that's a goal, I mean, for Albert, that seems like that would be just fine for him because it looks like there's tension and objectives. It looks like it would be a fun game. But for me, I want my solitaire mode to match what the main game is as well. And that's just how I want it to be feeling. Yeah, I agree with that. I concur. And so this is on Kickstarter right now, you said, right? It is on Kickstarter right now. Um, It's one to four players. It's going to be finishing up on August 10th. And if you want a copy of the game, it is $49. Okay. Is the art style the same as Gloomhaven? or It is the same art style as Gloomhaven. You're playing one of the races as Gloomhaven. It looks very similar. You know, the, the top and bottom type cards, it's all very similar art style. So if you like the art style in Gloomhaven, which I personally do, you will probably like this art style as well. Okay. Um, well, uh, there's another Kickstarter game I want to talk about, which is uh, Star Realms. There's a new Star standalone expansion available now and it is called star realms frontiers i guess this would be the the third standalone star realms game um it's on kickstarter right now it's you could get that plus up to i think i think they said 11 expansions total available through this kickstarter now that first one is a a small expansion or well it's a standalone expansion so it's kind of big right like the basic game all the other expansions seem to be small packs They've been releasing a lot of packs, you know, sort of, sort of the size of a magic pack. You get like 10 or 15 cards in it. And what's interesting is that a lot of these expansions, six of them, are so you could play Commanders, which is very similar to the, the character packs that you could play from Hero Realms, where you get a, a basically a, a unique starting hand, and then each player could start with a different starting deck. Um, so it looks, looks, looks pretty neat. There's a few other expansions in there. You could get this starting at $20 for just the, the base set, up to $65 for everything. And if you want to spend more, you could go a $5,000 pledge, which is neat. <laughs> I don't know what you get, but you get a whole lot. I bet you get your picture in there. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And then some. And this ends in August 10th. Yeah, I like having my picture in game. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> we played, uh, we played uh, what is it? Harbor, Harbor yesterday night. Yep. Nicholas was asking about your card. He said, oh, that's Julius. Oh, does he have a copy of that? Yeah. Yeah, we've got that. Because we also bought the Bottle Cap Vikings. Nice. Cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm all out of copies of that at this point in time. Oh, no. <laughs> I have sent out so many of them. I mean, I have still my one that I'm going to be keeping and you know, probably oh, never yeah. let go. But I think I've sent off all the spare copies that's sent to me. For those who don't know, I submitted a um, – during during playtesting for the game Harbor, I submitted a player power that didn't make it into the original game, but did make it into a mini expansion that was included with the game Balakab Vikings, which is the Ice Viking. If you've seen my uh, picture, my avatar on Board Game Geek, that's a smaller version of the Ice Viking that is based on my actual real picture. So, mm-hmm. so it looks just like him, except for maybe the beard. <laughs> not that i know because i haven't met you then my daughter's in dark moon and apparently my wife is in seafall and we're all over the place oh cool <laughs> well neat well i've got one other piece of news and then we can start talking about 
living card games in Arkham Horror. Oh no. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's that's what'll be going next. Anyway, let me let me stop rambling. The other item is there is a new expansion for for the solitaire role-playing game Quill. This is called Quill Shadow and Ink. Now, if you're not familiar with Quill, it is a solitaire role-playing game in which the point of it is to write a letter. Um, you pick a character and then you write a letter to another person, and you know you roll dice and that helps you decide what words to put in there and all. Honestly, it's pretty much dice rolling and writing a letter. And then you score your dice rolls. It, it's that straightforward. Um, either way, it's still pretty neat. But the new expansion that I'm talking about is called Shadow and Ink. It is a Lovecraftian campaign expansion, which is pretty cool. So in this one, you, you write a letter. I haven't read through it yet. Uh, I'm going to print it out tomorrow. But you um, you write a letter maybe to Lovecraft or, or to a character in the story. And, you know, based on how that goes, you'll get a response. And then you'll write again and get probably get a response. And the campaign is four letters. And then you see how you did at the end of the game. Uh, so that sounds really cool. I didn't know it, but there's actually also another campaign expansion for that game. I don't remember the name of that one. Uh, but it's a really neat game. Definitely worth checking out. That's available through Drive-Thru RPG. And it's pay what you want. So I think if you didn't want to pay for it, you could download it for free. If you want to give a few bucks, you can. Definitely. And so you're just gaining the books, or is there other components for that? No, it's it's a it's a PDF, what you get. And the PDF is just instructions for the game and the description of the characters and then the stories you're going to write, the letters you need to write about, what the subject matters about. And it's pay what you want. So you could literally get into this for almost free just to see if a solitaire RPG would be for you. Yeah, I think you could actually download it and pay zero if you want. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think you can. And then if you like it, I guess you could buy it again and pay more if you thought it was worth it. Well, I see Valzi over on our podcast chat is talking about how he's not sure if a solitaire RPG would be for him. Um, do you think this would be a good place to start if you're trying to see whether or not you would like trying the solitaire RPG? Um, so the way I play RPG solitaire is I like to write down a story as I'm playing um, and write what's happening. Other people prefer to play RPGs where they're moving figures on a board and having fights with the monsters and stuff and exploring dungeons and that sort of thing. Um, so this fits my style perfectly. If, if that sounds interesting, if you like the idea of writing a story interactively, then absolutely. If that sounds like a chore or a drag, then just avoid it. It's pretty light. It's pretty We've simple. Before, we talked about it also when you were doing the Rory story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Seems like your kind of thing. I mean, you know... You could get it for free, so it's it's you know can't go wrong. And there's <laughs> other games like this you could try out, similar in style, maybe a little more complex, that are pretty good. The one that I covered that one time when I did that uh, accidental mini episode, uh, what was it called? The Plant. That's that's a great RPG, awful creepy, but it's really good. And again, it's a it's a letter write or a, a creative writing experience is what it is. Let me just say, since we're on the subject, mm-hmm. it's it's your fault, Albert, that I own D&D books and, and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. I remember early on, one of your early episodes uh, when you were talking about Mythic. Um, but, uh, yeah, this this seems to be more the story-driven stuff where, uh, eh, I don't know, not too excited about it. But um, that is very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've bought D&D books and I want to play those solo too because that has a – the new DM's Guide has a dungeon creator. A random dungeon creator, but I haven't tried it out yeah, yet. It's fantastic. Bunch of charts, just yeah, just rolling dice, and and it kind of just does the work for you, like a random uh, dungeon generator and whatnot. How cool! That that does sound cool. 
All right. And so so that is available. And that was the other item we use. And the publisher is Trovish Delver Games. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and move into our discussion topic. Uh, LCGs versus big games. I felt like mm-hmm. this is sort of something we need to get in there before we talk about the idea of Arkham Horror, the card game, which is an LCG. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, an LCG is a living card game. What that means is it's a collectible card game without the rarity components of it, like you would have in a magic card game. Um, in a magic card game or something that's a collectible card game, when you buy a sealed pack, you don't know what's in it. There's, you could be getting a bunch of junk or you could be getting really expensive and rare cards. In a living card game, when you buy an extra pack, you know exactly what's in it and every person gets the same exact thing in their packs. So there's no rarity. You always are able to get a full and complete collection. And over time, that collection will continue to grow and grow and grow until like games like Netrunner or Lord of the Ring, they become such giant, massive collections that they can be really huge. The same thing can happen with a magic type game, but in both of these, you can come up to being a giant, massive collection. That's what an LCG is. To define what I'm talking about with a big game, what I'm talking about here are large, expensive type games Mechs versus Minion, Gloomhaven. Um, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Those type of games are large games, multiple scenarios, many different components. Many of them, they have campaign play or legacy play and a lot of different replayability and a lot of hours that you can spend in a single type of game. So those are the two different types of things because I feel like for many, they're going to hit very similar niches. And I feel like we want to talk about sort of the advantages you would get going into an LCG versus just buying a single big game. One of the reasons why I want to say that is because many people I see when we start talking about Arkham will lean over towards another recent popular game, Gloomhaven. I don't personally own a copy of Gloomhaven, but but Arkham and Gloomhaven are the two games that I've probably spent the most hours playing, even though I don't own a copy of Gloomhaven, in the last year. Uh, Arkham beats Gloomhaven by a lot, but again, that's probably because I own a copy of Arkham and I've played Mm -hmm. it an awful lot. But those are the two that I probably played the most of in the last year. For many people, when they get onto an LCG, I think that one of the first issues they're going to be having is going to be price. And I know that you, Albert, disagree with me about this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, if you go buy an Arkham Horror, it's like 40 bucks. Super cheap. If you're buying, what, the first copy of it? Yeah, if you're just <laughs> the first copy, yeah. If you're just buying the base game, it's about 40 bucks. You could play it, find out if you like it or not. All right, and then, so that's pretty cheap. Um, if you do like it, <laughs> the price of Arkham Horror just went up. If you do like it, then you could uh, buy expansions, you know, and buy them one at a time and add them to your game and, and explore through that. I mean, which is nice. We're in Gloomhaven. If you buy it, it's a big cost up front. While it is a big cost up front, I feel like if you're trying Arkham Horror, you shouldn't even try it unless you're prepared to go all in on it. Because an LCG is not going to be fun if you're only doing the core set. You can get the core set to see if you like it, but and then determine whether or not you want to continue going all in on it. But 
if you're not prepared to go in on it, I don't feel like you should do an LCG. Whereas Gloomhaven doesn't hide anything like that. While you may not like it, and you may end up feeling like I waste $150 because I didn't like the mechanics, there's nothing hiding the final cost. It's, it's definitely clear as soon as you see the price tag how much it is that you're going to be spending on this game. For example, mm-hmm. with Arkham, you're saying it's only 40 bucks. Just in terms of, of core stuff alone to get it to date, you're probably going to need for Arkham two copies of the core sets, a copy of Dunwich, and the next six Mythos packs. If you want to continue getting stuff, you're probably also going to need some sort of dice bag, although you can probably find some things for free. Um, you're going to want the copies of the two print-on-demand gameplays, Carnival and Rougarou. Um, and the costs just continue to go up. If you're just getting the Dunwich and core set or two core sets, that's already $200 MSRP versus Gloomhaven's MSRP of about 150. So, mm, I mean, we're talking MSRP in terms of comparison here. Yeah. But where are you, what are you going to do with all this stuff? It's an expensive, it's an expensive buy-in. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's going to be, I tend to buy a little at a time, personally. And so for me, it's not so bad. I don't feel it. Exactly. Whereas with Gloomhaven, it's a big price up front. With Arkham, I kind of like having that little buy-in because I do have a board game budget. And you'd, you'd be surprised when the amount of board games I buy, but I do have a budget. Um, <laughs> but having it be just once over time, $15 MSRP for a scenario every month or so, I can do that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And it comes out over time. For me also, I'll tell you the honest truth, I don't feel like I give enough support to my local game store because when I'm getting something big, when I want a big box game, I will typically go buy it from a cheaper online store instead of somewhere in my, my local store because either it's not available right then from my local game store because it's significantly cheaper from an online store but with these, there's not that much of a price difference. I can get it pretty fast by just getting it at my local game store. I get it consistently from my local game store. So for me, I really like my local game store. Big shout out to Comic mm-hmm. Seller. It's an excellent place to go, and I definitely want to support them as much as I can. And for me, this is an inexpensive way for me to continue to support my local game store. I ask them to, con- to subscribe me to all the Arkham Horror Card stuff. And not only does it allow me to continue to get that monthly fix of the Arkham stuff, but it also lets me, you know, continue to support them over time with something consistent and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's worth noting that Arkham Horror is coming out once a month right now. Um, Lord of the Rings has been every other month at best and sometimes a little slower. Well, I think so, that's you know, potentially I I, because Lord of the Rings had less demand than Arkham Horror does. It could be. I've I've no idea about the demand, um, but even then, at some point, th- there's only so much that developers could do. You know, it may be that they had a lot they had a lot of time built up before they released it, so they already had made a lot of work or something. But at some point, the creative throughput is just going to have to slow down. I think either that or or they're being very slow on purpose for Lord of the Rings, or they bring on a new designer. Mm-hmm. Are, are you talking about uh, Lord of the Rings or Arkham with the, the slow churning out? The, the Lord of the Rings is slow. At least it was for a long time. I don't remember the last pack off. I think it was coming out every two months. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it came out in 2012. 
Yes, I think that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, if, if I can jump in here, um, I think that's part of it. Part of it is one, um, they've slowed down quite a bit because it's been out now for five years, but also the other card games, cause they have a ton of LCDs over there. Fantasy flight. Uh, they're about to release uh, legend of the five oh, rings. Yeah. Um, and they've got all these other card games. They redid um, game of Thrones. So they've got these other ones going out yeah. and I feel like they are going to end Lord of the Rings pretty soon here, especially they've got the last uh, pack of the, the saga expansions. They got the very last one. So now we can be Frodo and drop the ring into Mount Doom. Um, that should be coming out Q4, I believe this year. Okay. Uh, yeah. I do worry that it's going to end. I, I don't think they've slowed down though. Cause, cause I mean, I've been buying it from the beginning and they were doing it first every other month. Then for a while it, it got a little less regular and now it's been every other month again for for this last uh, release or two, for the last series, for the last cycle or two. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I was going to say, they really do have a lot. Now, I don't get any of mm-hmm. the uh, <laughs> what do they call the nightmare decks? No, this game is oh, no this way. game is hard enough. <laughs> I have nightmares. I don't know what those packs are going to do to make things worse. But um, so when I got I got into the game in December 2013, so there was already tons out there, and I feel like for someone who's a bit apprehensive with uh, Arkham. They can maybe wait a year or so. Um, the other thing is the demand. As soon as the packs come out, they just they're off the shelves quick. So if mm-hmm. you maybe wait a year, um, let a couple of the cycles come out, uh, and then take a look at it and just get a whole bunch of stuff all at once. Um, you know, you could play through scenarios, really get some good deck building in there as well, um, and then maybe you know you're set with your collection. I mean. I know I'm set at this point with Lord of the Rings. I'm set with wh- what I've gotten. Uh, I'm going to get the, the saga packs, but that's probably it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of want to finish the one I'm on and get that last part of the, the saga and then not get anything else, but then they'll come out with a really interesting story again. Let me segue into one <laughs> other aspect of the difference between yeah. buying subscriptions and buying a single purchase. With me, for example, and I'm just bringing Gloomhaven as an example of this, with Gloomhaven, I sort of played a whole lot of it in a very short burst of time and almost got overwhelmed by the amount I was playing it and just sort of burned out. I didn't want to play it anymore for a while. And because I didn't own my own copy and I wasn't playing it solo, by the time I got back into it, the game had progressed and moved on. With Gloomhaven or with any time you're buying a single purchase, it's very easy to just get the whole experience in and play out and sort of feel like you're done and get burned out on it. With something like Arkham or an LCG or any sort of subscription model, over time, instead, you never get really burned out. There's always this drip trap. You, you finish up one thing and you're always left wanting more. You're always eagerly awaiting the next thing to come out. What's the next thing that I can do? And you can never actually have that. So I feel like that keeps excitement continuing along and makes me continue to be more excited for getting back into it, playing the next one, or even wanting to play through the old ones again because I still have that excitement because I'm not feeling burned out. I don't feel like I've played through the whole thing and I've played enough. I'm tired of it. Do Uh either of you guys have that same sort of experience when you're playing a single purchase game versus a subscription purchase game yeah definitely i I find there's less well most single purchase games there's less variability with these games like you play it for a while and then you finish and then another campaign comes out so you could start something else entirely different it's like a new expansion every few months or something it is but in a big box wizards academy i think also for example 
a single purchase with a lot of variability. Wizards Academy had different mechanics and different interplay for each of its 12 or so scenarios. So I don't know if it's necessarily true about that, but even with Wizards Academy, at one point in time, I played all those scenarios. Okay. What were you going to say, Jeremy? Um, no, I was going to mention, uh, yeah, the replayability is a whole other aspect because, so depending, depending on how much you have with, with either game, really, you know, once you play through uh, a certain, you know, certain amount of packs or whatever, you can go back and, you know, just try a different strategy, um, maybe pick up a, a new expansion. Like, for example, I haven't gotten any of the, uh, was it Treason of Isengard or the, the purple packs with the, the Ents and the, you know, the Elves and things like that, like, Getting that eventually down the road, you know, popping open those packs and going right from the beginning again. Um, I think the replayability is there. The what they improved with Arkham over Lord of the Rings was the fact that there's kind of like deviating paths within the story, which is pretty cool because, uh, well, obviously, you guys have played it. Um, if you haven't, when you're playing through the game uh, of Arkham, it's kind of like uh, an RPG where, you know, depending on what you do or what you decide to do or not do, um, you know, different things will happen. So it gives you an incentive to go back in there and try it again and maybe try different characters or, you know, uh, build your decks a different way. So I, I think they do a good job, uh, an excellent job, actually, of just, you know, wanting or giving you that want to, to go back in there and play through the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Valzi on the chat is mentioning that the, uh, the excitement of the purchase is actually the big difference. Right. He's he's absolutely right. So the the other thing I was going to say is just uh so at, when my solo gaming kicked in right and I needed a fix and I started to get really uh, hardcore as far as solo gaming. One thing I was really envious about I never got into the you know Magic or, or Pokemon games. And when I heard of uh, Lord of the Rings and I saw wait a minute there's a game you could get into where you can get packs and build decks and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that they fill that void you know for the solo gamer. Um, and it's, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, later on, I want to get more into the differences between Lord of the Rings and Arkham Horror, uh, because there's so many similarities and so many differences and it's worth noting them. Well, that said, I think oh, we probably yeah. spent enough time on this topic. Let's go ahead and get into our review <laughs> of Arkham Horror, the card game. Yay. And now we have some music playing in here, which I don't feel like setting up. Uh, bypass in order to do that live. So all you guys are have to imagine music. Music. Da, 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 da. Something like that. Beautiful, Albert. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, hearing it live is so much better. <laughs> Alrighty. So let's go ahead and get into Arkham Horror, the card game. Now, everyone here has had a chance to play it a lot. Out of curiosity, Albert, can you estimate how many hours of this you've played? Of Arkham Horror? Yeah, Not Arkham that many. I've played about six games of it so far. Six games of it? That's it, yep. Okay. I have played at least three times through each scenario. Um, wow. Some of them four or five, especially the earlier ones before we got Dunwich. Um, and I think I'm at more than 40 hours into this game. It's, it's an excessive amount. I long ago stopped keeping track of it. <laughs> There's no such thing as too much gaming. You're all right. Yeah. Uh, I'm totally with you on that one. And I've already pre-ordered the next release of it. So I'm fully in, but there's a lot of hours that have gone into this game. Um, Definitely much more so than just about any other game in my collection. Oh, but you love it, but you love it. 
I do. <laughs> I do. I do. You definitely it's going to get a plus one for it. <laughs> but let's go ahead and start with it. So the first thing we do is we talk off and we give a quick summary of the game. For anyone who's not familiar with Arkham Horror, the card game, we already talked about what a living card game is. And this is a living card game. So yay. Uh, what that means is that it comes with a single pack or the core pack. And over every month, you will continue to buy new scenarios with it. Those scenarios will have both player cards and scenario cards. You will use those player cards to build your card deck and use that card deck to go through a scenario, interacting with the different enemies and monsters and collecting clues throughout the course of the scenario until you can fulfill whatever the objective is. And those objectives will change from scenario to scenario. So... That is the summary of the game. Let's go ahead and talk about the rules. Albert, do you remember so long ago learning the rules of the game? Yeah, I do. The The rules were not hard to learn. I, I like it. They, they bring two books. One is a, um, one's a rule book, which has a reference to everything. Put that back in the box and just ignore it. The other one is the, I forget what it's called. The play learn book to play book. The, the, the learn, learn to, to play, play book. book. And basically it tells you, okay, now put this over here, get that over there, pull these cards out, and then it, it walks you to playing the game. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you learn for how to play from and what you reference the most, I think, mm-hmm. um, whenever you have questions. Well, really, you continue to reference well the Learn to Play book? I've only played six times and, you know, and, and oh. kind of sporadically. Okay, fine. I suppose. I haven't referenced <laughs> the Learn to Play book in forever. <laughs> <laughs> I bet forever but i've continued to say every single game that does these i really like having the two rule book approach as long as you have it both of them be good i really like the two rule book approach having one that is a rules and one that is a learn to play book because it makes learning so much easier especially for a game that is as thick as this is this is a relatively thick thick game to understand and get into it and get all the stuff put together, especially as you start adding on more mechanics. And because it's a system that is open and available to do so many things with having the learn to play book that takes things down on a very basic step-by-step thing is an excellent way of teaching the rules. So I continue to really like how fantasy flight has made this sort of a key thing for all the games that they're releasing. Keep that up. And it's worth mentioning, you know, you don't need the learner playbook. In theory, you could learn everything from the rule book and you could find all the rules there. No bad idea. You know, no, you can't. They don't they don't accidentally you can't? No. But you could if you want. Sure, be a pain. But you could do it. But what what I mean really is you they don't hide rules in the learn to playbook. You know, if you're unsure about something, you could find the answer in the rule book. Oh, that I is true. I think that's pretty true. Yeah. That is and true. some some people don't do that. Some people hide half the rules in the learn to play section. Wizards Academy. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. Yeah, I mean, Wizards Academy was one that I definitely violated that because they had the simpler version of the game, which felt like the learning game, and then they had the more difficult one, and they had the grimoire, um, which had all bits and pieces of things, but the grimoire didn't have all the rules together. Yeah, that that is frustrating. The rules reference, the rules resources, everything you need. My biggest concern for that is we're going to continue probably to have things that are not going to be in the rules reference. For example, Exile. Mm-hmm. We had in um, we had in the Dunwich Legacy expansion a new mechanic, Exile. And 
I'm hoping that they continue to use some of that because it's an interesting mechanic. Because this game has a gameplay mechanic, has a campaign play mechanic, you will continue to level up your deck and get experience points to spend. With an exile card, you're losing some of your experience points in order to get a more cool, more powerful effect during one game, but you're actually spending your experience points to do so, essentially. I'm hoping we see more of that exile mechanic, and yet it was only something mentioned in Dunwich and it wasn't in the main set of the rules. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping they, yeah, it, they continue that. Uh, you know, if Lord of the Rings is any indication, they will definitely continue that. You know, I know one thing that happens in Lord of the Rings because they release uh, expansions over time is they, they, they see how people are playing and what they're doing, what works and what doesn't work. And they could adjust the game. Mm-hmm. If people start exploiting certain mechanisms, they'll, the next few expansions will fix that. Right, and, and that takes care of that sort of issue. And and if people are saying, "Oh, this is too easy," or "That's too hard," or whatever, they could adjust it as they release expansions. Okay, so that's really us talking about the rules again. Both both Albert and I are giving a thumbs up to the rules. We like how they're presented. And we like what they're doing to the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you learn the rules solo? Did you learn from the actual learn to play rulebook, Albert? Uh, I learned from the learn to play rulebook. I, you know, the first game I played solo, I think. The second game I played with a friend, a uh, friend of the show, Tim. Next, then I played Soul since then. Um, so it's been a little mix of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I, I also learned the rules. The first time I saw it was actually way back at last Gen Con, um, where I saw Team Covenant play through the game then. And so I learned a bit about the rules then, but I did learn from the learn to play also. So let's talk about the theme of the game. Albert, what do you think about the theme? It's Lovecraftian horror. I love that. That's, it's, you know, I'm a big fan of last fiction i i dislike they could actually defeat monsters potentially i haven't gotten far enough to find out if that's true or not but base you know if we base it on and it's worth mentioning here that's right this is based on the arkham horror board game right that came out in the past also from well from fantasy flight games but prior to that by um chaosium i think and designed by is it richard lanius i think so so um, one thing about that defeat since i've seen some other people do it Arc, uh, Fantasy Flight is actually very careful to not call it Lovecraftian. They call it Arkham Files because unlike in Lovecraftian, which is always about the inevitable doom of humanity, in Arkham Files, there's a much more upbeat tone. We are actually able to survive and harm them and send them back. In none of the games you ever kill one of these ancient old ones. Um, you only harm them enough to send them back or close the rift or push them away. You never kill them, but we're able to strike back. You're able to make an effect. And that's really because Arkham Files is not the depressing lore that is reading Lovecraft <laughs> book. Oh, that's the best. I don't like them. I don't like them. You'll, you'll probably no. hear that a couple of times. No, I don't like them. <laughs> I'm glad that in Arkham Files, they said, drop this Lovecraft garbage about everyone dies. No, we're great. We're awesome. <laughs> positive and upbeat. So I like that they took the whole thing and they took the idea of these of these people, but and then dropped all the the depression out of it. But you know, you'd think, you know, where am I going, where am I going with this? My, I, I, I noticed no that when I was playing, the first character I picked, you know, I went to the characters. Oh, this looks boring. This guy fights. This this one finally I picked somebody whose name is Baker. I said, Oh my gosh, this is great. She's a cook. I, I like playing characters that are really going to struggle and have a hard time. And that's just my natural bent. Sure. Uh, and apparently what I picked was probably one of the worst characters to, to play solo with. Agnes? 
Agnes Baker, maybe. That's what I was told. And, you know, based on my experience, it was super easy. No, I think Agnes is really strong solo, so I think they're wrong. She, she, well, she died. She died. I think that's player error. She she was hung from a tree and died. But but yeah, but I I prefer those underdog characters. I'd like it to be a struggle to feel like uh, I'm fighting some, you know, impossible horror. Well, then you should try playing Daisy solo. Okay, Albert. Who? Daisy. Daisy Walker? Yeah. Is that the name? Okay. Uh, so, so you know, about the theme, all these characters, or many of them anyway, you're going to recognize if you've got the Arkham Horror board game because it's a lot of the same characters, same names, same statistics. I think in some cases, maybe even the same pictures. Maybe in all the cases, I don't know. No, it's different pictures. For instance, with is Jenny, one, one specific thing with Jenny is they really changed her to... Um, well, anyway, dropping... I'm, I'm going to drop that particular line of conversation, but feel free to look up for more information about the different style of art for Jenny from now and versus six years ago. Go take a look. Okay. <laughs> You'll probably notice something about her style of dress at this point in time. Yeah. Um, which I approve of how they do it now. And I'm glad they handled that way and very quiet. I haven't seen very many people make a stir and a fuss about that. And they did that well. Anyway. Okay. Moving on along from that particular point, just as a counterpoint to Albert, by the way, I know Albert likes Lovecraftian stuff. Me personally, I would prefer it if they would have done this in a fantasy setting or a Netrunner setting or one of the other settings. I am not a big fan of Lovecraft. I'm a big fan of the game in spite of that and not because of it, unlike an <laughs> Albert. I'm okay with it. It's an okay theme for games, but I'd rather it be a different theme. And that's just my opinion. That being said, it certainly delivers on the theme very well. Noting that the theme I'm referring to is Arkham Files theme and not Lovecraft theme, it delivers on the Arkham Files theme very well, primarily because they made up the theme. Okay, Paul Parr. I I would not say they made up the theme. I mean, this is Lovecraftian anyway, even if it's not doom and gloom. You can't can't claim it isn't. Not fairly, I think. Fantasy Flight can't. It's not doom and gloom. I'm saying even, even though it isn't, it's still Lovecraftian. It's the the monsters there, the the settings there, the pulp horror. Yeah, I've got I've got to agree with Albert on this. Uh, I think uh, a large part due to the just the art and uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, man, there's some pretty pretty crazy stuff that goes on and things you run into for sure. That's true. <laughs> there's some creepy stuff. There is definitely creepiness. So, so that's a theme. So, should we jump on to components? Sure, go for it. Um, so the component this, you get a lot of cards in this game. That's what you get. It's a card game. Um, you get a ton of cards and a couple of rule books, like we've mentioned, and some counters and tokens, and that's about it. It's all cardboard, basically. And you get a whole pile of tokens, and you don't get a bag to duck to pull out with them. <laughs> yeah, the the token bag, as it's referenced in the book, is not actually a bag. You get to buy your own. Required components. Yep. It. it I, yeah. I bought a little bag from. I don't know who makes it. Chessex or something, and it works great. Yeah, I had a Crown Royal bag sitting around, but I've. If not, I probably. Dead personally, I, I kind of prefer bowls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like bowls too. A lot of times, though, I like reaching into the bag and drawing. Um, the art, it, you know, it's good art. I think um, it's decent. It's. I actually if, wouldn't even consider it good. It's decent. Yeah. I'm really not blown away by any of the art. It doesn't look amazing. Great. Okay. Nothing, nothing stands out off, off the top of my head, but I mean, it, it is fine. And each card, each card ha- title has unique art, which is nice. You know, so there's tons of art in this game. Yes. 
There's Which a lot of great. art in this game. Yeah. I'm. It is borrowed art in some cases. I I, I remember reading this. I, I haven't looked closely myself. I think some of the art also does come from the other Arkham titles. Because mm-hmm. um, at this point, they've got three Arkham games, right? There's Arkham Four, Arkham Horror, um, Eldritch Horror, mm-hmm. the Arkham Horror card game, and, and the other one, um, Elder Sign. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bothered about a couple points with the components, though. The first thing that bothers me is that some of the cards, like the events, the title for the card is in the middle of the card instead of the top of the card. (laughs) Every other card has the title at the top of the card. But for some reason, someone decided that for these ones, you're going to put in the middle of the card. So if you're trying to flip through a collection of cards and you have all of them on the top, you have to dig a little bit deeper to see the events and what their titles are. I don't know whose bright idea that was. <laughs> that is kind of annoying. It would have been so much easier if that would have been at the top with everything else. Were they trying to do this to make sure that you know it's an event and not anything else? Because, I mean, skills also are played straight to the discard pile. <laughs> I, I don't know why they did that. It's it's annoying. It makes it harder to sort through my collection because they did that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, another regarding components, they don't include it, but you should definitely go out and buy the Arkham Horror playmat or giant mouse pad. Why? Because it looks really nice. No, I don't and, have it. I disagree with you, Albert. Ah, oh, big fail there. the The art on it is is fine, but it's big playmat. It's got space for all the bad stuff, and it's just really pretty. It makes me happy to play on it. I don't have it. I don't think you need it. <laughs> a friend actually has it and we played on it. I don't even think you need it. So I, I don't think you do. I'm going to disagree mm-hmm. with that one. Okay. I think having a play mat makes playing just about any card game easier. So I do have a play mat, but it has, it, it doesn't match Arkham. No, but you know, they're so cheap too. Now they are. Even if it's like 25 bucks for that large mat. Yeah. Right. Person. I don't know how big it is. It's two by two feet. Maybe. Another interesting thing they have, by the way, about the art. For monsters, they put the monster art on the bottom. Everything else has the art at the top. The monsters have the art on the bottom. Did you notice that, Albert? No, I hadn't really paid that much attention to that. Yeah, I noticed that because way back when, I think we actually talked with Matt about this. They put it on the bottom to try and give you a sense of sort of oppression in it, that the monster is coming at you and is already closer at you. So they want to put the monster art at the bottom. Mm, Did you notice that, that, Jeremy? Yeah, I heard that as well. They actually, um, if you guys hadn't watched it, there's uh, the the event they have every year, Arkham Knights. They did a whole mm-hmm. like presentation about the game before it released, uh, and they did mention that about the monster cards. They said j- exactly that. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mentioned also with Matt when we interviewed him shortly after that last event. I don't remember what episode it was that we interviewed. It was a while back at this point. Um, do you think that having that art on bottom achieves their goal? <laughs> not really I, I don't think it makes that much a difference um it, one thing it does do you know so when you're you know you pull it off the deck you can automatically tell you know because it's right. so different that you're like, oh man i got a monster so I, exactly i guess so that's what i think is the best thing about having a monster on the bottom both that when you pull off the deck you know you have a monster but also when you have all the boards all, everything on the on the table because this is a card game everything on the table just about is symbolized with a card with the exception of your characters which in the in the game itself are symbolized by some smaller cards and i personally upgraded it to have small little um flip over tokens for each of the characters but 
the, the everything on the table is represented by cards because the monsters have their art on the bottom and everything else, locations, characters, effects, events, things like that all have their cards art on the top. That means that monsters stand out more on the table because they have their art in a different place. You definitely know clearly, Hey, there's a monster over there. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely intentional. Yeah, it's a good design choice for sure. Because then you can just take a look at the board state and just see, oh man, you know, see them scattered around, staring at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know they they do Fantasy Flight sells miniatures of the different characters. I think they still carry them. But I'm not sure, and I'm so tempted to get them instead of using those little stand up cards. Or actually, I stand mine up. I got a little stand from the Arkham Horror board game because I have so many from all the expansions. And I, I use that. So my little cards are standing up as they go from location to location. Personally, what I did for mine is I, I have the, I have some um, plastic basically bubbles. They're, they're what they originally are coin holders, but I put my chaos tokens in these plastic holders. So all my chaos tokens are being stored safe, sort of sleeved. And I have a second <laughs> corset as well. So I had extra tokens. So what I did is I printed off some copies of all of the character art cut it out in circles and put it sandwiched around two tokens and put it inside one of those sleeves inside one of those token sleeves. So I have a bunch of what look like tokens for each of the different characters and I can move those tokens around the board. And I think that looks really nice. That works really well for me. That's a good idea. Maybe I could try that. And I kind of wish that had been included already in the chipboard that they did. Mm-hmm. Maybe some expansion or something. Well, I think they would have, I, I don't think they ever would because they didn't do it for the, but who knows? That's true. Well, so so talking about the components, you know, we haven't mentioned the expansions, but there are a bunch of expansions in this episode. We're talking about them. So there are a couple of small standalone expansions, right? Two adventures you could play. Like those are just two decks of cards, each a whole adventure. And there is another box, which is the same size as the original box, which bugs me, by the way. I wish the, the game box was large like Lord of the Rings. Because my Lord of the Rings box, I put dividers in them, and I could fit all my cards in that box. Pretty cutting much. costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but you know what? They're cutting costs, raise costs for me. Because now I had to go and buy a box and dividers. And I don't know. Box. I got a BCW box. It's not so expensive. <laughs> okay. The um, Actually, honestly, my box was cheap. But they gave me a, a used uh, cardboard box from the game store. They're going to throw out because it said swamps on it. So my Arkham Horror is in the swamp box. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so the, the expansion, the Dunwich Horror expansion, brings two more adventures to play through and new characters and new character cards, right? So so if you're bored or feel you didn't have enough cards in the base game, you get Tar and suddenly get a lot more character cards to pick from. And then after that, each of the the decks for that cycle, and there's all six are out now, will bring more character cards. Mm-hmm. So as you buy more over time, you're going to get more character cards, more characters, and basically more option for customizing your decks. Speaking of my comment, by the way, about cutting costs, I really think in, there were a number of different component choices and really art choices that were chosen. They felt to me like they were trying to cut costs. And the first time it really struck me was at Essex County Express. And I know, Albert, you haven't played that one yet. Uh, Jeremy, have you played Essex County Express yet? I I have not. I've been just staying off the the channels and not. I haven't played them yet. I'm waiting. In. They all came out now, right? The the entire first they cycle. All up, the whole all thing. Mm-hmm. I was waiting until they all come out, and I'm gonna grab them all together. Sure. So, so no. 
so in Essex County Express, this is minor spoilers, but nothing's nothing. Uh, just so everyone knows, for most of the podcast discussion, I'm going to be doing minor spoilers, but nothing substantive. But for Essex County Express, you're going to have a number of different train cars. Um, and the train cars all have the same backside, so you don't know which train car you're going to be stepping into. But the majority of the train cars are all identical fronts with slightly different text on the bottom. So rather than making unique cart art and really unique theme or mechanic for each of those different type of things, they copy-pasted to a bunch of different carts. If those are the only things you see throughout the whole game, you feel like you're doing the same thing over and over again for Essex County Express. They could have had unique art for that. And they've got so much art for this. I don't know why they didn't just get a couple more unique pieces of art and unique feeling to them and do something different, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Yeah, that wouldn't change the cost much at all, honestly. Sure well, I mean, I'm sure it does change so the many cost because, would, you know, every, not much. I mean, every single one of these, it feels like they're trying to do every single cent counts because, for example, there are less cards coming out in a pack of... Arkham than there were for old Lord of the Rings games. There's less cards in there. Okay. I know they started making smaller adventure decks for Lord of the Rings too, because they, they could control them better and they ended up being more interesting when they were too big. They didn't work out so well. And also it's less expensive. They've been trying to keep the price the same, but because costs are rising, they have to cut costs elsewhere. And so one way is by making the smaller, cheaper boxes, by making Mm -hmm. less unique cards, less unique card arts. And so a number of times throughout the course of this, and Essex County Express, I felt, was was a really bad one for it. It just feels like they've done things in order to cut costs. Okay. Yep. Um. So, gameplay. Sure. So let's move on to gameplay. Um. Just to throw out some of my ideas of some aspects of the gameplay, I very much like that there's the different classes for it. So there's the rogues, the mystics, the seekers, etc. And each one of those feels different. It's the the color wheel you see for many other different type things. Each of those feels different and each of the investigators feels different. So you're going to have a lot of different deck building styles based on which investigator you pick up. And all of that is going to be adding to the level of replayability to the game because being able to build differently styled decks and encounter the scenarios differently will add to the level of replayability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you are a magic player, you would you would call these classes mana colors, right? The color wheel. Yeah, because that's exactly what they are, basic. Mm-hmm. In addition, just the scenarios themselves often have a high level of replayability. Often, they made sure to include different copies of cards, so that, for instance, one time you'll play through the game, the Watley Ruins will do x effect but the next time you do it it'll have y effect and so because the board state can actually change as you go through it each individual scenario can be replayed multiple times and still feel different even if you're playing with the same exact deck you'll have different things occurring you'll have different interactions it's definitely stronger if you're playing with different decks but the game itself will add enough randomness in it that it'll allow it to be different Um, Another positive with the game is the campaign progression of the game. 
unlike with Lord of the Rings, here you get experience and you slowly build up your deck and your deck can slowly become more and more powerful. And we see now from Dunwich Legacy that over the course of the game, they'll throw in some things to make your deck get worse or the chaos bay get worse in ways to sort of counteract the fact that your deck is getting more powerful. But you're getting more and more powerful and you're getting to do cooler and cooler stuff. And I like that level up mechanic. It really makes it get a connection to your deck and it helps really to make it easier to build the deck initially and continue to build it up over time. I like how they did that. Yeah. And what you're talking about is the level mechanic is not in the game so much as it's between games, right? It's sort of a meta thing. When you finish the game, you're going to get six points depending on, on you know certain cards that you collect into your victory point pile and things like that. Maybe they'll give you bonus points at the end of the game just because they're watching for whatever reason. Um, you could spend these victory points then to buy new cards for your deck for the next card in the uh, in the story, the next uh, campaign. Or what is it? The next deck in the story, the next adventure. Um, so as you're playing through, you know at the beginning, you pick the cards you want for your deck. That is your... You've built a character. That is the character you're playing. Um as you gain experience points, you could trade out some of those cards for better cards, basically. Now that I do think to really enjoy the full set of the level up, you're going to need to get more stuff in the game. Now that I really think that's just sort of, again, I mentioned you got to be ready to do the full buy-in to really enjoy the game. And here's where I'm going to make mention of it really heavily to make good decks that are fun to play and continue to have good level ups. You're going to need more card choices over the level of the game. Otherwise I think you'd just get bored. Mm-hmm. And that, but as you buy expansion packs, hey, there they are, new cards. Check mm-hmm. it out. We've got three new cards in my favorite class, or, exactly. or whatever. Yeah, I have to. And, and mm-hmm. go on. No, I was just gonna say I have to agree with that. Like the, um, you know, part of the fun is is that in between game, right? The the meta game, the building the decks, and um, it gives you that much more control when you've got a bigger, you know, card pool to draw from. Um, cards and and again that's where the 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 buy-in that you're talking about julius you're gonna have to get another you know, i've got two core sets i only ever got one core set for lord of the rings but i, I felt it was necessary with the uh, arkham to get a second core set hmm. yeah i haven't bought a second for i do have two for lord of the rings because my son started playing with me and suddenly i found i needed two another really cool mechanic that they did is the chaos bag um, different games have yeah. different ways of approaching randomness and how to deal with randomness. Cream of the Chaos Bag, it's almost like doing essentially a dice roll, a D20, where you can manipulate what the different sides are and how to interact with those. Making that a Chaos Bag and changing those tokens and having some campaign effects actually throw in worse tokens into your bag and things like that creates a fun tension. It's a fun mechanic that they can do with the game. And it's a good way of making controlled randomness, allowing you to also add skill cards for it to affect how badly the bag can be and also make a tension between how many resources you're actually willing to put towards a test are all a very good thing. I like how they had that full play. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Am I the only one that does this? You you reach into the bag, your palms are sweaty, you grab one of those chits and you just slam it down on the table. (laughs) All the time. In fear, just, oh. No, not in fear. (laughs) (laughs) Confidence. Absolute confidence. confidence. I don't have a tentacles token. 
Oh, I do have a tendency yeah. to stoke. I never. But I, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's another thing, though, with the replayability. And, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, they just kept improving, you know, off of what they built um, on Lord of the Rings. And just being able to, you know, kind of change what's in the bag. I absolutely love that because you can get better at the game. The card pool is going to get, you know, bigger and better. You can do more things and then you can go back to those earlier scenarios and ramp it up because you got to, you know, you've got a better, better character, better cards and whatnot. Let me ask you, what do you guys feel about that tentacles token? Do you feel like that was a good thing to have an auto fail? Yeah, I think so because it's, you know, the difficulty, right? You can, Right at the end of the game, right? You can just spend all your resources on certain cards and and just about guarantee you're going to get it. But there's always that one chance of those tentacles coming out and grabbing you. Mm-hmm. That keeps attention going. For those and that aren't familiar, from, from the tentacles is an auto-fail. Whenever you're doing a skill test, if you draw out the tentacles, you've failed. No matter what. Can't be changed. See, the doom and gloom is in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, like, uh, that's like the equivalent of equivalent to rolling a one on a d20 um mm-hmm. they, yeah they wanted to keep those rpg aspects in the game and, and I, I believe that's that's what they got from that mm-hmm. yeah and it's worth mentioning this game feels like an rpg in many ways it really really does i have seen some people who house rule to actually remove the tentacles from the game because they don't like that moment when they've thrown all of their resources towards a crucial test and it comes out that they entirely had nothing they could do to fix it they just mm-hmm. lose everything i've definitely seen some people house rule with that I like that. And I remember when, when you interviewed the designer, he mentioned that, yeah, it's great because you could, you could customize the bag any way you want. If you want to, yeah. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so, so when I went to play the other day and I started a new campaign, I said, you know, I thought about, do I want to play the normal mode? Do I want to get more of the story? Do I want to be really hard? And, you know, in the end, I picked the mode I want and they had a little chart telling me which counters to use. And even then, I considered tweaking a little bit. Yeah, is- you, you can change the difficulty that way. Exactly. Um. But I, I would never remove the tentacles. I think that you need to have some sort of thing in there that can make you lose it all. Because otherwise, like you, like you were talking about a moment ago, Jeremy, it's very easy to actually auto-succeed through the whole thing and to be sure that you can just win through the whole campaign if you never have that tentacles drawn. Right, absolutely. Um, well, let me ask you guys, because I'm curious. I'm curious as to, you know, a bunch of people who play the game. Do you think the game achieves the, the story aspect really well the thematics um and also how invested do you feel in the story you know between the art the mechanics um do you feel like you're playing an rpg do you feel like you're in that world more so for dunwich than for night of the zealot but i think there was also the level of time that they had to develop the story and i expect that in future boxes that are going to be the full eight scenarios instead of just the three they had to put out for night of the zealot which is the scenarios that come in the core box um, I feel like there was a story that could be developed. Now then, I think that there was more of that story that could have been developed, a couple more interplays and explanation for how people got here, what the underlying mechanics are. If you read through Dunwich, um, at the very end of it, there's an epilogue, which is some essentially designer notes. And during those designer notes, they basically say, oh, hey, here's sort of the stuff that was going on in the background. With original, I've never played the new Mansions of Madness, but when I was playing the original Mansions of Madness, I never felt like the story was being told. I always felt like it was just playing mechanics, and I never felt the story, never once. And at the end of it, 
I would read over the story and they're like, oh, here's what all was happening in the background. Like, oh, I, I kind of see all that, but it never came through to me. So with this one, I got a story. I got a sense of developing characters and motivations for people who were all being involved in things that were going on. More so the Mansions of Madness. Was it perfect? No, but it was pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know what you could have done to make it more so other than have more flavor, more discussions essentially it's going to require paragraphs of text and the rules somewhere to really fix that yeah i, I really like the way the story it comes along as you're playing you know f, at the beginning of the scenario you get a little bit of flavor text and when you finish you get some more depending on how how it ended for you now then that I, said I really like they do that that said you were asking about if it feels like a role-playing game to me jeremy yeah. with a role-playing game i feel like I'm developing a story. My character has a story. I've played a number of different role-playing games before. Um, and my, you know, my favorite mechanics had always been the uh, um, werewolf type mechanics um, or vampire or mage, those type things. But I like those mechanics. But with those, I felt like my character was developing the story with these games. Your personal character doesn't tell a story. I can't really get a story about what happened to Ashcan Pete or to Jenny Barnes or any one of those characters throughout the whole thing. They're not the ones who are doing the story. The scenario is the one who's doing the story. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll tell you what is I, when I went to play my campaign, I said, Oh, I'm going to play just this one character. And I picked a character I wanted to play. And I said, maybe I'll play the second one. When I read the description, it's only a change. I said, Oh no, no, the, the second character I want to play has to be the main character. Mm-hmm. And the other one's going to come along because it makes the story better in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so I find that you know even my characters are adding to the story that way. The game really is a role-playing game. Yeah, I mean, I will say the one thing they did improve, and I guess this is leaning more towards the RPG aspect, is that they, you know, the the turns, the open turns, you know, you have a certain amount of actions, you have all this stuff you can do, and it's really just up to you to, you know, okay, should I draw more cards, get more resources, move over here? I think that open, that openness, to the game gives you at least more control or at least that feeling of control i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely so uh, said, I, albert were there any issues you had with any of the mechanics um no nothing comes to, i i kind of don't like the, the using the cards for the skill test and always being stuck having cards that only work for one skill or another you know i kind of wish i could use any card for any skill test well, I, I like that right. you can use cards for skill tests because it means that you often don't have a dead draw in your hand, and it's another element that you have to be balancing out when you're building your deck. So, I don't know, maybe I should just write this off to player error, Albert. I've never really... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, bad, bad luck of the draw, maybe. But, you know, I, I've been known to mis- make a mistake once. I mean, when you're building your deck, you sort of have to be able to make sure that you have a mixed balance of skill icons so that you can be able, or at the very least know that you can initiate uh, skills that require, or skill tests that require those icons that you're using them. Uh, For example, one of the ones is willpower, brains icon. If you're not going to be having a lot of those, you may not want to have as many skill skill icons in your deck. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I definitely think there's there's more uh, control there too. You there's so many times because you got this big fat deck in LOTR, right? You got this fifty card deck, maybe even more. You could add more. Uh, whereas the the decks in this game uh, in Arkham, you've got thirty at least with the base uh, base characters. Um, you're going to see your cards more often. You're going to see um, you're going to be able to use them more. I, I feel like 
more often than not, I'm okay with having certain cards, even if it's just for the icons where Lord of the Rings, man, I can't tell you how many times you've gotten cards that, yeah, you put them in your deck, but it came at the the worst (laughs) time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and I think they, they've been realizing that because of Arkham, right? Smaller decks are better. And, you know, I think magic was standard with 60 and then went with 50 and it probably was a little better. And then they realized also the, I forget what the other deck is called. The one you're playing against the threat deck, the smaller those are, the, snare, the better the, the game deck to be. You're talking about the encounter deck? Well, uh, in, in Lord of the Rings, it's called the threat oh, deck. Oh, the threat deck? Sorry. Yeah. But the same thing. The smaller it is, the less random and chaotic it feels and, and the more directed and more story driven, I think it's going to feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something they've been realizing as they develop these living card games, especially the solo ones, I think. I think it's huge, huge things they've learned there. Um, so. Yes. Are there any mechanics and any scenarios that you haven't liked? No, not yet. Nope. I'm I'm enjoying the game because of the story. So I don't think I'm going to really hate a mechanic um, as long as it it adds to the story. If it, if it feels random and unnecessary, I may dislike it. Like if they had a, oh, you're lost in a house of mirrors, and so now you're going to have to randomly draw a card every turn for 30 turns until you find the right one. That would drive me crazy. Something like that would. But so far, everything else has felt <laughs> thematic. I was say, you clearly haven't played any of Dunwich. <laughs> okay. At one uh, point in time, there is an, uh, a mechanic. For much of Dunwich, I feel like they continue to introduce basically one key new mechanic for each scenario. And I felt like a lot of the times those were really, really good. In the, I believe it's technically the, the first scenario, or 1A, which was extracurricular activity. At one point in time, again, minor spoiler, at one point in time, you're going to shuffle a card into the encounter deck. And the whole goal of the continuing part is to get through that encounter deck to try and find that one card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that could, that could be frustrating. Oh, I remember games like that in Lord of the Rings. I mean, having experienced it, I didn't find it frustrating. You had the ability to control it and move through it and find it. I didn't find it frustrating. I yeah, I liked that mechanic. In general, I really liked all the new mechanics. I liked the things that they were doing with these new mechanics. I liked how they were playing through it. For me, there was only really one significant bar I had on this. In general, when you're going through this, I think there's basically two archetypes of decks that you can build. You can have a combat deck and you can have a invest and an investigation type deck. You can have one that's good with enemies and one that's good at getting clues. Or you can have a deck that is, you know, sort of a, a general deck, something that can do both of those well. But those to me are the two archetypes. And in general, there's a lot of tools that each class has to be able to mess around with things and to be able to proceed along and either get clues or deal with enemies and make solutions to problems. And many of the scenarios give you multiple options for how to address things, either for key important tests, give you two stats that you can test at, or by giving you additional cards that can let you manipulate things uh, or player cards that can manipulate things. And I really feel like a lot of the time they let you play through that with the one exception that for me just hurts so hard when you get up to where doom awaits, 
there's a new thing that you have to do an investigate test on one of the cards in order to be able to get more cards put out into play. And that investigate test is actually printed on a location, which means that anything you can play with it that can help like flashlights from the basic game, all those things don't help anymore. So it cuts out a whole set of toolbox. And I think this was one of very few things that cut out a whole set of toolbox and just said, you can't do all that stuff anymore. And I just didn't like that. I, I really like that in general. In general, they gave you toolbox. They let you figure out how to do these things, except for this one. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm pretty sure we we're going to wrap up, but uh, just your, your comparisons game-wise, right? Where would you um, put this game with um, and compare it to? And also, where do you guys feel now that this ranks? Because it's still fairly new, I think. Um, you know, we'll have the... Uh, people's top 100 coming uh, again later this year, I think. Um, what, what are your thoughts about those two things? I don't think it's going to ring nearly so highly because I do think that the price point is going to put off a fair amount of people. It's an expensive game. And I think that's going to mean that the market for it is a bit smaller than something like you know, a $60 game, which is going to be more in a price tier than I think people can afford and enjoy. And I think that's going to push it down on the rankings a bit. For me, it's going to rank pretty highly, but I've been horrible about actually submitting my own personal rating these things. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, you know, in, in BGG rankings, for example, I don't know how well it would do, but Lord of the Rings, for example, has been popular with people that play it for a long time, and I think it continues to be popular. So it's got a 7.6 rank. I uh, don't know what number it is uh, under thing, but I think this game probably does a little better than that that one does well i I think it'll be quite successful right um well i'll bring it full circle and this will be i guess this will be my last thing is um to the first things you guys were saying the solo guild right the solo player guild the solo players out there it's such a big group um and i think publishers designers are really starting to pay attention to us and i think i think this one's going to stick around for a while just like lord of the rings i think we're going to see more of this kind of thing happen um, if you look at other games, collectible games, like pa- even Pathfinder, uh, adventure card game, that did really well. And I think a, a huge reason is because of the solo aspect of it. Um, I I absolutely love it. I look forward to it. Um, I wait to the end of the packs because that's how I watch TV shows. I got to wait till the season's over or, <laughs> or the show's over completely because I just want to play through it all at once. But uh, I, I absolutely love I'm it. the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I get them as they come up, but I don't open them until I'm ready to play them. I'm the exact opposite. I get them, they come up, and I open them immediately, and then probably play them within a couple days. For me, I've always watched TV shows. As soon as they come out, I enjoy the idea of having it come out over time rather than sitting and burning through the whole thing. It's much more fun for me to continue to theory craft and think about it over time and have more fun with the experience of talking with other people about it. With televisions also, and with board games, both of these things, I like being able to get them in that drip drab experience over time. So for me, it's almost a, a positive that they come out of the subscription model. I do like that. <laughs> That's what I'm always you, you find I've, that fun. I'm like, ah, uh, I, I, I like that. I like that exactly. I've always liked having one thing that I've been subscribed to. I had been subscribed to, it used to be to um, X Wing, and then that that dropped away and then I subscribed to ashes 
as a competitive card game. And then there was too long of a delay in release for those ones. And so my group dropped off that. I always like having something that I've subscribed to. I don't want it to be more than one, both in terms of cost and in terms of brain power. But I want to always have one thing that I know that consistently is coming out and consistently is expanding. And one thing that I can always be sort of involved in and watching. And I like having that one thing. And for me, Arkham Horror is probably going to be it for a good number of years, I expect. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, you know, on a side note here, I think we're going to be talking for a little while longer, Jeremy, because I think there's still tons to say. So this might end up being a long show. Um, by the way, Lord of the Rings is ranked 95 overall in BGG. So that's pretty respectable. And I do think Lord the Arkham Horror will do better. Uh, and, yeah. you know, they don't have to worry about the IP issues, right? Lord of the Rings is an IP that they have to pay to use, basically. Um, so there's costs with it and there's restrictions on what they could do. Right, they may have to stop producing stuff because they just can't do any more stories, uh, because there's just nowhere to go. Right. With Arkham Horror, they could go as long as they as long as they can think of ideas, right. and nobody can tell them no. So, so that is good. Yeah. Returning to a previous oh. topic, if I can, mm-hmm. um, I asked if you guys had any scenario mechanics that you didn't like. Did you have any favorite scenario mechanics from a specific scenario? Yeah, name a specific scenario that's your favorite mechanic involved. <sighs> I I would say just the uh, the tactical part of it, um, and that's just about every scenario. But like even so, the one that comes to mind is when you're in the woods. Um, I believe it was the the final chapter, the just the base game. But just you know, you didn't know where you was go you were going uh, as you moved through. Things started to connect, and uh, and you're just going through the. Uh, through the woods there or even you know the very first scenario you're going in your house and it it really does feel like you're you know connected to different places uh moving around but that tactical bit to me just adds a new layer to the game to a you know to a card game Mm -hmm. now you're adding that tactical portion to it that's my favorite uh uh, you know mechanic in general Mm -hmm. yeah i I don't have any i haven't played enough of the the newer stuff to have any, any opinion on that sort of thing I only just started the the Dunwich Horror and played Scenario 1B there, and I really enjoyed it. What I'm enjoying is being able to explore. I I don't think we really talked about it much, but in the game, there's location cards out on the table, and you can move from location to location. You're you're moving your little character card around to show what location you're in, and you're exploring, and I really think that's pretty cool. I really like that a lot. Yeah, that's probably what I was getting at, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think for me, one of the things that I've really enjoyed a lot has been something that showed up both in the second one of Night of the Zealot and in um, Blood on the Altar of Dunwich, which is the idea with both of those in the in Night of the Zealot, there's the cultist deck that you have to get out. And the goal of that scenario is to capture as many cultists as you can. And mm-hmm. in the one that's Blood on the Altar, the goal is to defeat as many broods as you can. With both of those, you definitely have a feeling you're never going to be able to get all of them. Even at the normal base level, you're not going to be able to get all of them. And you just want to try and get as many as you can and then leave with just about every other scenario. There's an end goal. You want to finish this end goal and then leave with these. It's as much as you can. And for me, those ones always created a tension, just a pulse that I'm trying to get just one more, just one more, just one more, just one more. <laughs> a nice push, Sherlock. And then I remember the first time I did Night of the Zealot, I kept trying to push for just one more, and, and I went over. <laughs> and I I tried for a little bit more, and it failed pretty 
epically. And I went into the next <laughs> one in a whole bunch of trouble. And similarly in Broods, then this wasn't even when I was going through a blind gameplay. I tried to push too hard and then got a bad draw and ended up just failing out of the scenario and ending up just getting a whole bunch of trauma. And it just wasn't, wasn't good. It just wasn't good. So mm-hmm. with both of those, always having that just one more feeling is, is a good mechanic to, to I, I'm happy that they have a good number of those still coming out. Um, that's go ahead. Now I was going to add to that one. Uh, the casino scenario, I don't have all the scenarios memorized or, but, uh, that one I could remember just trying to escape the, the times I have played it a uh, few times, just getting towards the end, you know, you know, something's chasing you or, uh, I think it was at the Institute, the, the school there. Um, when you got yes. this massive thing with Monster. five eyes and just chasing you down and i'm just like you know my legs bleeding the other guy's like <laughs> half dead and i just want to get out of there it's great mm-hmm. that's neat and i think each one of those is just continuing to reinforce how there's a different mechanic and a different feeling for how you win in each one of them with extracurricular activity the school one you're talking about at the end of it you have to delve into that deck and then escape or somehow find a way to deal with that big monster with house always wins. You're dealing with these enemies that are sort of hovering around you, trying to find your way through to a secret room. Um, and then with Miskatonic museum, there's just the one enemy in the whole deck. And that's all about trying to mitigate that one enemy that keeps sneaking up on you. Each one of these creates a different mechanic and a different way of experience of the game. And I love how they've been just spot on with each one of these about creating something really nice. Really mm-hmm. with each one of those, except for the one minor problem with where doom awaits or <laughs> niggly problem with where doom awaits. When I played that uh, Dunwich Horror, the house always, what is it? The, the house, house always, always wins. wins. I was really confused about how to end the game. I, it took me a while to realize that I could just choose to stop whenever I want to leave. And ending the game to win, that's what you do. You, you choose to just leave the place, uh-huh. which is really strange. I'm used to the game ends when you reach the last card in the deck or, or whatever. A more explicit end, end condition. And I really think it tells you that too. Maybe, but it, for whatever reason I missed it, it wasn't obvious to me in what it said. You know, it said you could leave whenever you want, but I didn't catch that <laughs> that it was up to me to leave to end the, the game. Well, yeah, it's, it's could, funny because that very scenario, you could leave, but you got this hobgoblin thing going after the students. And you just, you know, well, do I save myself? You two are talking about two different scenarios. Yes. Oh, okay. But similar thing, similar, similar concept, the whole leaving, which is just neat. Yeah, it's neat how that works. It's definitely neat how they had that resign mechanic in, and they continue to push you to to make that resign decision. Yeah, and I like that you can only resign in certain rooms, right? It's very mm-hmm. thematic. You can't just resign in the middle of a casino or or middle of anything. You have to go to the exit. And just wait till you guys get to the end of Dunwich, where you do the final resign <laughs> if you can make it to it. <laughs> exactly. So, so. Um, what else we want to st- talk about? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about comparing this to Lord of the Rings. Well, how do no, you think it plays solo? Do you feel like you can can play solo with only one character? Do you think you need to? I don't think you need to. I think it's well balanced for one. Um, you will find that I think if you play two, 
that you get better synergy between characters, then that's sort of thing you could do more, and you have more versatility, right? Which is, I think, mm-hmm. typical for any any cooperative game. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought it worked just fine solo when I played it. Other than then I died horribly. <laughs> well, that is part of the game. You gotta you gotta survive at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here I'm saying I want Doom and Gloom, and I died, mm-hmm. and and I'm complaining about it. I, I didn't hear you complaining. I thought you were just mentioning that you died. We all know, we all know how good you are at games, Albert. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's oh, true. shots fire. No, that's great. With You don't want to be good at solitaire games because if you're good at them, you finish them. Right? You got to be really bad and get more out of your game. Well, fortunately with this one, you can just move up to the harder difficulty level. Yeah. No, actually, I moved down to the easier difficulty level. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I did. And here I'm, I decided I want more and I'm about to move up to hard. Well, I decided I wasn't too worried about the winning or losing so much as seeing the story and just just playing through it without yeah, you know, struggling. It's interesting you say that because um, even uh, Fantasy Flight, they did a profile for Lord of the Rings, a card game, and kind of categorized each person. W- was it on your show that you guys talked about this? It may have been another show I was listening to. but uh, they, I heard it too. I don't remember if it was us or someone else, but I remember hearing the same discussion. Say again? Right. Well, they kind of so what they did was they described each player. So everyone who plays Lord of the Rings and even Arkham Horror plays it for a different reason. So you could be a player like Albert who just wants to experience the story. You want to you might put it put the settings down a little bit, but you really just want to experience it. You want to meet the characters and, and things like that. Then you've got the the guys like yourself who maybe they they want to get achievements, they want the challenge, they want to lose a lot and you know, there's uh, they had just a couple different categories, but I thought it was really interesting. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. It, it for me it depends on, on on Lord of the Rings. I I will play standard only, and I will play the same scenario over and over and over until I beat it, and then move on to the next one. Yeah, you can't do that with with Arkham at least no. not supposed to. And I was very surprised. It, it's very different. And so so Lord of the Rings, I could do that. I'll play the same scenario over and over and over. And, you know, I'll play, I'll lose a couple games to say, okay, my deck is a little weak here. I need to adjust it to do this better or that better. And I'll change out some cards and I'll play some more until I get to a winning deck. And then I'll try the next scenario on the story. One mention and, I do have, by the way, about playing solo. We were talking about that a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, the pers- for me personally, the game is more fun playing with two characters than with one. Because with one character you always are going to have to build a generalist type deck. If you're playing two players, you can build, you, you have a much more wide variety of the types of deck you can build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so to tie that to Lord of the Rings real quick, the, you know, I was telling you how I played in Lord of the Rings. When you play each scenario, you build, you could build a deck for it. And you don't have to, unless you just somehow built this Oslo deck, which I'm not awesome at deck building but I, I could build a deck to beat a scenario and then move on and play a new scenario with another deck. Here, you're going to have to use the same deck through the whole game and adjust it gradually as you go from adventure to adventure. So, so you can't do that sort of style. Which is exactly it's pushing totally my point that you always, if mm-hmm. you're playing solo, you always have to build a generalist deck. Yes. I did not like that. It, it it works. I mean, it's perfectly balanced. There's lots of cards out there that you can use to make a generalist deck, but your deck's always going to be a generalist deck. It's always going to have to balance doing this and doing that. 
And I feel like if you're able to work on having synergies that you want to have decks that will kill monsters or deck that will do or use interesting methods to collect clues and do all sorts of neat things. I feel like having that, having two characters controlled creates more versatility and a lot more replayability and being able to do different things with your decks. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know if it's happened yet or not, but sooner or later they're going to have cards that really only work in, in multiplayer games, right? Where if you're playing one deck, you just the card is worthless. And so that happens in Lord of the Rings all the time. Like in Lord of the Rings, there's cards that are totally useless if you're playing one deck. Absolutely. Um, oh, they I don't already have, well, they actually now. already have cards. Okay. They have there's two cards that I'm thinking of. Um, I assume you guys have seen all of the player cards at this point. Yes. But there's yeah. two cards I'm thinking of. There's Stand Together, which is a card that cannot play be played solo. And there's Lone Wolf, a card that is just an auto-include whenever you're playing solo. Okay. And so, so yeah, so these these sort of things, you know, you, you get to take advantage of all the cards when you play with multiple characters. And like I said, I played two, I played solo and I played two characters. Both worked. I, I don't have... The verdict is I don't know which I'm going to prefer because I've only played two characters once, but it worked fine. It wasn't unmanageable. What I didn't like about it is it took up a lot of table space for the two characters. Um, that's my biggest issue with that. That's why I usually prefer playing fewer characters. Yeah, I find you're going to have to stack your your tableau of cards more creatively if you're playing two mm-hmm. characters. Yep, and I dislike that. I do that with uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, and that works fine. Actually, it works great that way, but yeah, but you don't have tokens Other typically on cards in Sentinels, and you do often here, which I felt was mm. the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see it would definitely get crowded. You have to have a big table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say te- teamwork is another card that I think is, uh, depending on how weak the other character is, it can kind of be like a just a cheat code almost, to, you know, to get someone who wouldn't necessarily get a certain card or weapon to kind of get it to them. Yeah, but I think that's only for that one un- until the end of the scenario. Yeah, yeah. And so, so also the if you are going to play two characters, un- unless you buy multiple base sets, or maybe it stops being an issue once you have done which are in the other sets. But you, there's only certain character combinations you could play with just a base set. Truth. Um, so, so you either have to buy two base sets, or possibly get the, all the expansions and then add cards from there. Because what happens is there's very few cards of each class in the base set, and there's I think what, five characters, and they're they're going to overlap because they each use two classes. Yeah, and and that's exactly why I think it, it just necessitates getting two base sets for that very reason. It, it was kind of annoying, you know, that you had to do that um, in order to even make the you know a, set, uh, a deck for each character in the base box even. Mm-hmm. But I th- I'd say that's well. I was gonna say it's only an issue if you're gonna play solo, but that's not true. You know, if you're gonna play with, with your wife or something, or you still need two sets. But when I played with my friend, we each had our own copy, so we could play any characters. It didn't matter. So yeah, yeah I, I was gonna say. So if, if you guys are looking at um, the two games, what are the what do you guys like better in one over the other, and dislike one versus the other? Um, and I'll give you an example for me. Um, one thing I, I love about Lord of the Rings is just um, the fact that you get to use so many characters. You know, um, I normally play two handed. So you've got six characters on the table uh, as you're playing through where I'm probably never going to play with more than two characters in, um, you know, in Arkham. And I think uh, that just lends again, it lends to, you could keep the same deck, but just kind of switch out the, the character. 
characters you're going to be using, or the heroes, I should say, uh, throughout the game. Um, I kind of like that. And maybe it's because of the attachment, because of the IP, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, so you have that attachment already. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I took notes on comparing the two games. So I've got all sorts of things about this one versus that and what I like better in each. But um, when I played Lord of the Rings, I always play one deck, one deck there. Uh, what I like about that the most, I think, is the the deck building there. In this, in that game, it feels more like a like a traditional CCG, and you're going to build a deck and and tweak it over time, that sort of thing, and um and adjust it to to beat the scenario or to beat your opponent, you know, whatever whatever the case would be. And you like that so better? It feels more, yeah. It feels more, I like that about it. It feels more traditional. Um, on the other hand. Uh, I really like the the Arkham Horror. You're playing an adventure. You're going to build a character and keep that character throughout the whole story because this is really more about a story than than playing a, uh, a card game. I think this this has a, a much much greater sense of story than Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I mean, um, I, I guess it really does depend. the The camp. Have you played much of the uh, the campaign boxes, uh, Lord of the Rings? Uh, I've only played half of The Hobbit. I haven't played the second half of it yet. And I haven't played the other one because I'm kind of waiting to, till they're all available. Because I'd want to play it all in order and not jump back to one of the other things. Yeah, you're doing the Mighty Mouse tactic there. But, uh, <laughs> it, it's, um, yeah, it, you're missing out. It, it's, it's just, it's wonderful because, uh, like Julius was saying, just some of the, the mechanics. So those un- unique mechanics that come up. In Arkham, you know, per scenario, they do that a lot in the Lord of the Rings, especially in the campaign boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have this story. It's a story that we all know. It's about, you know, some guys dropping off some jewelry at this big mountain. Um, and it's, you know, you go through, there's changes. I, that I love your way of characterizing that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's <laughs> about as short as you can make it. Uh, for three books but yeah so as you're going through there's you know things that'll happen that'll stay with you the the boons and uh, i forget what the the terminology they use but yeah it's kind of the same thing where that's going on in arkham things that happen if if you know negative things happen you'll get a scar basically that'll stay with you for the rest of the scenarios uh, that you go through Mm, yeah that's true it is true the the hobbit had i remember i played the the riddle game one and that has, you know, it has that that part from the the Hobbit book where you're you're trying to solve riddles, and they came up with an interesting mechanic to deal with it. Um, oh, yeah. It wasn't super thematic, but it worked. It worked well for what it was. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's when you build your deck with a bunch of just zero and one cards. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because you have to guess card coming up, how much it costs, or something like that, um, which was hokey, but it worked. Um, so so let's compare a little more. Lord of the Rings, a ton of cards available. If you want to, you can buy into that and get all ton of player cards and a ton of adventures to play through, you know, tomorrow. Um, huge choice. I think that'd be overwhelming to do it that way personally, but that option is there. Arkham Horror right now is pretty small because they've only gone through that first cycle. Lord of the Rings is that with the three, three, four, five, six, seven, seven saga boxes equivalent to the Dunwich Horror in size. Plus, uh, I think six or seven cycles, each with a total of nine adventures. Right, so it's tons of tons of story there, and again, tons of tons of player card. Um, so you can make all sorts of really cool theme decks. Um, 
And I like that about it. I really like that about it. Though when I play, I mentioned already, I will not open the deck up until I'm ready to play it. Um, so n- none of those cards exist to me. I, I don't I don't let myself pick those player cards because it's still sealed back. Once I'm ready to play that, I open those cards and then I can choose those and add them to my deck if I want them. Yeah, that's the way to go for sure. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's worth saying if you do that and you just start with the base game and add one deck at a time as you're going, it's not going to be overwhelming. I've always heard people complain about how overwhelming it is to get into it now because there's so many cards available. Nobody says you have to buy them all at the beginning or or open them all at the beginning, really. And I think if you don't, that helps a lot. And even with Lord of the Arkham Horror, when I finally went to play it, I had bought the base set and I had a couple of the uh, the standalone campaigns in that box. And I was already overwhelmed with all these different cards. I'm not sure what was what. And what really helped was to just sort them out by type and have everything organized and suddenly became super easy and manageable. And so, so it's something you're going to have to do is just find a nice way to organize all your cards and sort them. Yeah, I was. let me throw in here. I think because um, one of the things, uh, and Julius was talking about this earlier, is just the components. Um, if they're really trying to save money, I think it's t- it's taking away from the experience a little bit. Because I, I did the same thing. I uh, I got those little coin protectors for the for the um for the chits no so i got the you know the protectors for the uh for the tokens and i got um i actually am using i believe Catan uh wooden pieces to kind of map out the board you know because you kind of you, you want to remember what's connecting to what and i think i think <laughs> that's essential i just don't know how you play i remember losing badly in one scenario the first time i played it because i just could not figure out what was going on and it was because I didn't, you know, map out the board there, um, you know, upgrading just different. Uh, I actually have little cardboard bullets now that I use for the different guns um, and, and even oh, the, the standees. Right. The uh, so they, they're cards that come in the base game. But I think getting, you know, miniatures or, you know, making some sort of tokens like Julius did really adds. I think it, it almost needs all those upgrades. And of course, you need a bag, you know, or a bowl to pull the, the chits from. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely have to upgrade this game when you get it. Or maybe you don't have to, but you're gonna want to. You're gonna find you enjoy it more if you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Little Roads is, is a genius idea because yeah, when I was playing the last campaign, I got confused about which room I could go to from where I was at. Because you got the little icon at the top of the card that tells you what room you're in, and it's a shape and a color. And at the bottom, there's other icons showing you which rooms you could go to from where you're at. So so you're going through a map. And if you don't lay out the cards in the right order, it may not be obvious, you know, where you are and where you could go. I definitely am going to give a shout out to Geekcraft Shop on Etsy, by the way, if you're looking for some of those nice things. They sell some really excellent uh, dice bags that you can use for a chaos bag. And they also are looking to create some road, the, the road connectors you guys are talking about to be able to connect the different locations. So I'm definitely going to give them a special shout out. Those Ooh, really nice there, things. Are those the ones that are kind of shaped as arrows, or these are just particular? They look exactly like roads. No, they are shaped as arrows, and they have the joint so that you can have the two sides pointing in two different directions. Okay, yeah, yep, I've seen them. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Oh. So personally, <laughs> I think I'm actually going to be taking a look at some of the the Litco also puts out a set of road connectors. And I'm going to look and seeing those. I like how, how they've done it. I, I want to have something that's a bit smaller than the ones that they're looking at, but I understand that. I think I'm in the minority on that. 
Hmm. I do know. I'll check it out. The uh, I, I want to keep going with the so, Arkham Horror Lord of the Rings. Okay, I was going to say. Oh, uh, <laughs> so another another interesting difference is in Arkham Horror you could play a character. Even if you're playing two decks now, you got two characters. In Lord of the Rings, you're playing teams of characters in each deck, which to me has always felt a little bit weird, and it, or it works fine. It just felt a little bit weird when you got like, gosh, n- names don't come to mind right now, but you got two characters that would never be together adventuring together. And there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief because of that. So I think I do prefer the Arkham Horror feel there because it feels more like an RPG. Um, and that's another thing. It feels like an RPG, which is fantastic. On the other hand, Lord of the Rings, I get to play the books of the Lord of the Rings. You know how, how cool is that? Yeah, it is pretty nice to you know hack somebody with the you know. I'm sure. Again, I might might be in the minority, but I do the voices when I'm playing too. It just adds to it, right? <laughs> I don't know that I could do the voices that well. So, Albert, have we got any last comments on this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go do you some know, last comments. No, it's not the last comment. The <laughs> the other thing I really like about this game, or maybe it could be my last comment, as you can tell, I think everybody here loves the game. It's a fantastic game. But what I really found was really cool is it felt like I was playing through a choose your own adventure book. It really, really does. Because you go through and you're making choices. And as you're playing, it says, if you do this, write this down. Because you need to know it later on when you get to the, the next page in the story. Um. And so it really feels like a children adventure book where you're going through a path and, and the choices you make really do make a difference later on. And not just mechanically, but story-wise. Yeah, and if you keep some of the other endings a secret, you could really play through a couple times and not really know what the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I've been trying not to look at them just because of that. Oh, I've got another last comment. Um <laughs> I, I promise, listeners, I'm trying to rein him in. <laughs> um, shoot, what was it? Duh, duh, you made me forget it. Good job, Julius. I'll, I'll keep thinking on it. You go on. Well, I think I've already given my last comments. I really enjoy the game. I think this is, you know, we have our normal rate down or neutral. This is a big thumbs up for me. I've put a lot of time into this game because I really enjoy it. I like the deck building. I like the continued thought process that goes into it. I like the use of continued and interesting and different mechanics. Each time I play a new new scenario, it feels like a different challenge. It feels like they continue to do something different and unique and challenging with the whole mechanic and structure while still maintaining the replayability to continue to enjoy the game and play it over and over again. It's not fun once, but each time is a lot of fun. So it's a big thumbs up to me, and I really do like the game. Yay. Okay, I know what I want to talk about. Uh, the way this works, when you finish an, a story, you know, like I mentioned in Lord of the Rings, I play through it, I could play it over and over and over. When I'm done, I put it away and then pull out another one. Here, I did not like this, that when I finish the story, I now got to take all those cards apart and put another set of cards together to make a different adventure. And that takes a little while to do it. Honestly, it's kind of in a way, but at the same time, it, it it breaks the story rhythm up a bit. And I didn't like that about it. What story rhythm are you breaking up? That's two you different know, stories. Well, no, like, so so I finished part 1B of the Dunwich Har. Now that it's done, I got to put some um, and then pull out other cards and put together the deck for for one a, uh huh. Right, and doing that, I think, is that the whole action of tearing apart the decks and rebuilding decks can break the story. And I don't know how much of an issue it is with Dunwich Har, 
But with the base set, you definitely have to do that unless you have two sets again because because the three stories share cards. Yeah, I think other than one and two, you have to do that. But Or 1A and 1B, rather. I think you have to do that, but I don't think it's such an issue. Okay. Yeah, well, there we go. But anyway, so, what are your final and, thoughts? And because of that, it's a horrible game. Oh, Albert. <laughs> no, really, I like it. I like it a lot. I'm having fun. All right, and you, Jeremy? I uh, we're talking about Arkham. Yes. Final yeah, thoughts. I, I final thoughts. I think it's um, it, it's it's the perfection of Lord of the Rings. It's a natural successor. If you like Lord of the Rings, go ahead and get this one. I'm going to be following the whole time through. If you're not a big fan of fantasy, again, go with Arkham. Um, Nate French is amazing, and everything he does with the, each new scenario. Uh, just brings new life to the game, brings a new challenge to it. Uh, I love the fact that, yeah, you know, you're going to get a new expansion every month and just kind of add to it little by little. Um, it's like a monthly bill, but it's awesome. Um, I absolutely love it. I've got nothing but high praises to say about it. The negatives um, really don't take away from owning the game, um, but you definitely do your research uh, and make sure you're going to enjoy the game itself before you go jumping in. But I'm all in. I love it. All righty, very good. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining us. We appreciate you having uh, having on us, and uh, I hope to see you around in the guild more. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll say a parting yeah. word, guys. Um, I really do love what you guys do. Um, you guys are a big part of just solo gaming as a whole. I hope that's not putting too much pressure on you guys, but keep <laughs> doing what you do, uh, talking about games and, and just um, really building up this community and and supporting everything. Uh, I'm right here with you guys. I got to get more active in supporting you though. So just look for me in the future. Okay. Appreciate it guys. Thanks for having me. We love feedback. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on. You can reach me at Julius at oneplayerpodcast.com or jailbird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at albert at oneplayerpodcast.com or fractaloon on BGG. Our website is oneplayerpodcast.com with the number one. And we're also on Twitter at oneplayerpodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at donpancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-like license. Thanks for listening.